0: all right good to be with y'all this morning in the Lord and uh, pray with me then we'll dig into it as you know the Texas morning is going to be out of mark chapter 1 let's pray and then we'll dig in father many of us have gone throughout this week and I don't know what we have experienced what we've gone through where we are at but Lord I ask that you would just Uh, Calm and settle our hearts, settle our emotions, Lord, settle our minds, Lord, and focus and realign our eyes and our ears toward you this morning. That we may hear your word, that it would not fall on deaf ears, but Lord, that you would just make fertile the hearts, that the seeds can be planted and established and that birds wouldn't pluck it out, that the sun would not scorch it out, that the weeds would not choke it out, God, and that we would not be distracted by the worldly distractions, God, to follow those, but we would be firmly rooted, that fruit would grow, that we would see it, Father. So may we be doers of your word and not just hearers merely this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. 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 Mark 1, One through eight I'm read this text for us out of the ESV it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God as it is written in Isaiah the prophet behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord and he preached saying after me comes he who was mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie I have baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit the title of this morning's sermon is everybody's a forerunner but for who are what everybody is a forerunner but for who or what? I want to start off by way of introduction of Mark, this author. Because I noticed something about Mark, this author, before we dig into this passage. I want you to think about a time where you had a close friend. I believe it's, it's a blessing to have a good friend, somebody that we can call uh, a brother or a sister. You know, Proverbs 17, 17 tells us that a friend loves at all times, and that a brother or sister is born for times of of adversity. So a good friend, a true friend, according to the scripture, uh, isn't one who bails on you when times get tough, but one who with wisdom, love, through it all, is willing to walk alongside you as you endure rough seasons that come with this life. I'm sure there are some in here this morning that may have experienced a a broken friendship or a tarnished communication with a close associate of some sort. In the beginning, you had this trust, you had familiarity. There was this genuineness, there was this peace. You considered each other a brother and a sister for whom you could call on in times of adversity. But along the way, something happened. Something happened in that relationship that became a source of division. It seemed irreconcilable. It could have been a lie, it could have been gossip, an argument, selfishness, jealousy. Or maybe they were just unreliable. But whatever the case, the two of you were not able to see eye to eye anymore. And so you parted ways. And you haven't dealt with this person since. Has it happened to anyone in here? Y'all quiet, I guess not. <laughs> or maybe y'all were the issue, I don't know. But anyways, you couldn't agree, you had to agree to disagree and let the Lord deal with it. I know I've been there. I've been the one who has gotten fed up with people and walked away from others. But I've also been that one who has caused others to walk away from me. But what's interesting is that the writer of this book, the Gospel of Mark, had a a similar experience. On his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, while traveling to Pamphylia, John Mark left Barnabas and Paul and returned to Jerusalem. See, it's uncertain why John Mark left, but whatever the reason, his desertion irritated Paul so much that on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 15, when Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, Paul strongly opposed it because he considered him, he considered Mark, John Mark, to be unreliable, unable to carry out the work of the ministry. And this caused Barnabas and Paul to separate too. And once a person has shown you themselves to be wishy-washy or unreliable, we discount what they have to say, and we no longer consider their words valid. But over time, there seemed to have been a change in this young man, John. But there was also a change in Paul's view of John Mark. See, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes that this brother is useful for service. And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, and, and also in uh, Philemon verse 24, he, called, he is called one of Paul's key helpers and fellow workers. And I'm sure during the moment of disagreement and abandonment, Paul could not have imagined that this brother, who was once considered unreliable, weak, and unfit, would become one of the greatest contributors to the kingdom of God. See, a couple of lessons that we can learn from this brief introduction is this. We can learn from the circumstances of Mark and Paul. One, we gotta be careful not to judge. We have to be careful not to belittle or dismiss people that we, our society, labels as being unfit and unreliable. Because the Lord in his time has a way of surprising and humbling all of us. And he'll bring us back full circle where we become beneficiaries of that brother or sister sister's service. And then two, secondly, Those of us who who may be in or were in Mark's position, don't ever give up on yourselves. Remain steadfast in Christ and watch over time how the Lord develops you. Amen. All right, so now we're getting to verse one. So Mark begins, this former unreliable servant, Begins his writing by letting the readers know exactly what he's writing about. Which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, this word gospel as we we know it now means good news about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who would save us from our sins, from this eternal hell, and then bring us in, transfer us in to this heavenly glory. This eternal bliss with God. But how would the present day audience have understood this word that Mark is writing to? Because the audience that Mark was writing to was primarily Gentile Roman Christians, not Jews. See, the Jews would have understood the word gospel in their context to mean the good news of a sovereign ruler taking his throne, a messianic promise, as in the king would come in the future and establish his kingdom in Israel. But Romans or the pagans would've understood, they would've understood it in a similar fashion, but without the Jewish connection. See, they understood the gospel in their context to mean the arrival of a God, small g, but not the God, big G, or a coming ruler such as Augustus Caesar would've been in their mental mechanisms, but that's not what they were thinking. See, now the question, in light of that, the question for us to ponder this morning is, How do we, you, me, these folks around us, how do they understand the word gospel? When you hear it, do you you only associate it with music? I mean, I know when I was growing up, when I heard the term gospel, I thought about black choirs. I thought of Mississippi Mass Choir. You know, I thought about John P. Key or somebody like that. Gospel music. That's how I associated it. Or do you just think about the Four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You think about those four Gospels, but you don't know anything about the content, the purpose, the point. What's the aim? Or do you just understand the word to mean simply good news without Jesus? I have friends and associates that will use this term gospel as a bookend after something good. Oh, the, the team won last night. Oh, man, I got this raise. Oh, man, that's gospel. Nothing about Jesus, right? See, what we think about the gospel and how we understand this term gospel and how we apply gospel will expose our theology, whether good or bad. And within itself, that will determine the aim for our lives. See, because what you know I don't know, what you do I do not know or do, lets me see what direction you're headed in. Now, it doesn't mean what you're going to end up being, but it definitely determines your your, your, your direction in the present time. And so Mark says that this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus. See, Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. He will deliver people from their sins. Then not only Jesus, but the Christ. See, Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah. And then he says Jesus Christ, the son of God. This is the, his lineage, okay? meaning he is one in nature with God. He is the co-equal. So he's breaking that down, the characteristic in his lineage, in this one verse. And then we see in verses 2 to 3. After telling us what this book is about, Mark authenticates his message, or he gives credibility to his claim of the coming of Christ by showing us that what he is talking about was actually spoken of long before him in this writing. So what does he do? He, he quotes from the book of Isaiah and Malachi. But he doesn't quote a prophecy about Christ. Instead, he quotes a prophecy about the forerunner for Christ. That being John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. This is the one that Luke wrote about, described as being filled with the Holy Spirit while he was in his mother Elizabeth's womb. When heard, when she heard about the good news of this coming Messiah in in Mary, he was leaping for joy. But why would Mark speak of someone other than the main character who who we would assume to be Jesus? What's the purpose of a prophecy about John the Baptist? Maybe Mark was aware of the audience. Those who would read or hear about this writing. See, keep in mind that he's writing to Roman believers and unbelievers, and the history and the culture that they would have been familiar with. You got to think about this now. Their culture or their history would have been familiar with that of kings being announced, kings being announced of their arrival by a herald prior to the king getting there see kings didn't announce themselves on arrival they sent someone days ahead to prepare the people for their coming now i don't know y'all's background and history how you grew up but uh in my household as a kid uh, me and my sisters always on the lookout not never for my mom she was way more soft but always for my, my my pops because we want to make sure that before he gets home, before he steps foot in the house, everything better be in order. Because we're gonna get it. If it's not. So, yeah, in the same sense, kings want to make sure that the people are ready before they get there. They don't want to see or find anything unkept. And so they didn't announce themselves on arrival. They always sit someone days ahead to prepare the people. And so if there was a skeptic a skeptic Gentile reader of this text, saying that they were unaware of the coming king, that no one's ever spoken of him, Mark could simply say, no, 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 but there was one crying in the wilderness. His name was John the Baptist, and actually, okay, Isaiah spoke of him as well. Malachi spoke of him as well. However, people, John is dead. John the Baptist is no longer with us. Y'all know this, right? John came. John did what he was supposed to do. John was executed by King Herod. John is no more. But because someone like John the Baptist is gone, that someone like this herald is gone, someone like this man who prepares the way is now gone. Does the message of John cease to exist as well? What I'm asking is, who was now the forerunner for Christ? because we're all forerunners of somebody or something. We just got to figure out what it is. What is it that we are leading people to? What is it that we are billboards for? When people encounter us and talk to us and leave from us, how do they leave? Worse, better, mild, lukewarm? Are they leaving convicted? Are they leaving like, man, I was encouraged by this brother and sister. Christ is who I want to follow more and more and better each day. Or is it more discouraged? That's what we want to ponder with this morning. Because we want to know who was letting the world know, who was letting your city know, state know, your community, your school, your, 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 your friends know about King Jesus. Who was letting this folks know about this crucified, resurrected, and the soon coming King? Who? Who? We can do it on a Sunday morning, but once we leave here, what's next? What's next? And so here's going to be like your your first point. We want to now see who John is. Who is John? We see who John is in verse 4. And so we see the fulfillment of that prophecy beginning in verse 4. It says that John the Baptist appearing in the wilderness. Now let's get this straight. Baptist was not John's last name. We want to make that clear. (laughs) It was not John's last name. See, in the original translation, he's called John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer. He was called that because that's what separated him from everybody else. See, John was was a very common name back then, just like it is now, and so they would add on attributes or characteristics or or relatives to a person's first name to distinguish them from others. Since baptism is what the community associated most with him, naturally, that's what stuck. And so, if I could take a second, just a second, to remove your last names and add on some sort of characteristics, some sort of adjective, what would they uh, associate you with? What would they call you? Yeah, y'all quiet again. But think about it. Past, present, and future. How would society in this community associate you? What kind of last name would you have, good or bad? Is that good? Y'all taking some time? Because I definitely wanted to pause there so you would think about that. Because that's the reality of this. We don't take enough time to do a self-evaluation. Scripture tells us to examine ourselves daily to see whether or not we are in the faith. And so, yeah, you got to be aware how you are leaving certain situations, circumstances, and people. Because if you don't, you got to be worried of leading people astray. And so when you think about it, this could go on and on, but this is what characterizes John. See, he didn't receive his name or title or recognition based on who his family was, who he hung out with. It was based on the consistency of what he did. Now, you may be thinking, didn't a lot of people baptize? Why was John the only one marginalized? No, everyone did not baptize. No, they did not. Jews didn't baptize. See, there were no baptistries. There were no churches. There were no first Lord's Day baptisms. The only sort of baptism that they would have done uh, was a symbolic one. Where they would baptize Gentiles into Judaism when a Gentile wanted to become a worshiper of the true God. It was known as proselyte baptism. So you can imagine why John was given that name. Because he practiced something that was unusual and uncommon during that day and age. And I wonder if we practice anything and do anything that's uncommon in this day and age. And so we see who John is. And then secondly, we see John's actions. Also in verse 4. In verse 4, John's main actions were baptizing and preaching. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, the, the job of a forerunner is to prepare the way, to lay the ground, to build a bridge for one who was to follow and to prepare the people for his arrival. And what's the best way for them, for the people to prepare for this king? Well, it's by Heeding to the message of the forerunner, which was to repent of their sins and to be baptized. They needed to be forgiven. Now, being baptized didn't cleanse them, nor does it cleanse us of anything, but it only declares our intent. It's an outward signpost to the world. It's a public demonstration that our sins have been wiped clean and forgiven and that we are now committing ourselves to following God for the duration of our lives. See, keep in mind what I said earlier about the Jews and how they didn't practice baptism but only baptized Gentiles into their religion. Because in this text, what we now see is Jews being baptized. They were coming to the wilderness where he would preach. Because the Jews, those who once considered themselves the elite in terms of God's chosen people were now saying that through their act of baptism that they are now no better than a Gentile. They are no more ready to make into God's kingdom than a Gentile was. Talk about humility and killing your own sinful pride. You're now able to identify with a people who you weren't previously inclined toward nor sympathize with. All on the basis of the gospel that leads us to recognizing that we are all level at the foot of the cross. Amen. See, Jews were brought up to despise Gentiles. To think of them as outsiders of the covenant. So, for them to be willing to submit to an act that only Gentiles were forced to do was them admitting to their own self-spiritual bankruptcy. And we know what Matthew 5, 3 says, that blessed are all the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then notice. Notice where this was taking place. It says that, ja, that, that John was baptizing in the wilderness. He was in the wilderness. You ever stop to wonder why these folks were leaving their homes to travel to the wilderness? One commentator says it this way. He says, to be baptized in the Jordan meant that Israel must once again leave and come to the wilderness for salvation. The people are called to a second exodus in preparation for a new covenant with God. To go back to the wilderness signifies Israel's acknowledgement of their rebellion and their desire to start over. Amen. Amen. And so we see that we know what he's doing. He's baptizing, but he wasn't just baptizing, he was singing something. And so now we see the content of John's message in verse 5. The content of John's message in verse 5. Because they were coming out, all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem, and we're going out to him and we're being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. The message of John was so impactful that we see in verse 5 that all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going to him. So what in the world was John preaching that was so potent that multitudes were coming? The gospel of Luke would tell us that all John preached was judgment. He called people a brood of vipers and said that the wrath of was coming on them. John would be the equivalent of a fire and brimstone preacher. He didn't tickle the ear he didn't come up with catchy cliches he wasn't trying to shout you i'll tell you that your harvest was coming he wasn't doing none of that john made it plain and clear god is coming to judge this world soon with fire and he's coming with a one-on-one fork separating the wheat from the shave. and so i would highly suggest for you all that you repent and be saved he says get your house in order and he knows that the word of god was not going to go out and come back for it but it was going to accomplish what it was set forth to do And with that being said, the example of John is simple as this. We plant, we water, and the Lord gives the increase. See, this was John's formula of ministry. That's all he did. That's all he was worried about, planting and watering, but knew there was someone coming after him. And so with that, we don't have to add nothing to it or take anything away from it. We preach the text. We teach the text. We live this text. We live this gospel. We live the, the scriptures. And that's it. That's all our concern needs to be. Because to take anything away from it is to soften it. To take anything away from it is to dull the point, the tip. This is why folks ain't convicted anymore. Because it's not piercing their heart because there's no more of a point. It's been shaved down so much by the culture and by society. Smoothed to a round edge that it just hits and bounces off like a rubber bullet. It doesn't penetrate. So how do we do that? by preaching the explicit, the explicit word. And then we see John's appearance. We see John's appearance, this is the crazy part, in verse six. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. But what was also unusual about John was his appearance in his diet And we just read in verse 6 what he looked like and what he was eating. Now, we could say simply based on this reading that John was looking crazy. And he was acting odd. See, if it were present day and I or you all saw pastor out in these streets (laughs) wearing camel's hair, cloth like a bathing um, robe or something, and with some sandals, and he had a mason jar full of honey with some grilled locals on a stick, you would say, this man is looking quite odd. Uh, Probably Kevin will go up to you and call you straight out across the street. Brother, what is going on with you? We would think something's wrong with our brother, right? Man's disheveled. And so that would be our reaction. It would be very, very cautious if we'd probably stay on the other side of the street trying to figure out, is he okay, right? Uh, But point being that we would read this from our worldview, which is why it looks crazy. But actually, yes, it was an odd dress, but the current, the current audience wouldn't have received it like that. See, they weren't thrown off because they knew that it was his fashion statement and what it stood for. See, his style would have reminded them in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 which tells us that the prophet Elijah the Tishbite dressed in a hairy garment with a leather girdle around his waist. And in Zechariah 13, it talks about false prophets. You'll be familiar with this. False prophets who would desire to deceive by putting on hairy robes or garments. Hence, this is why Jesus says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. See, they come to you in wool and hairy garments. Which, why, I think this is a a good example of why we shouldn't be overly concerned with how we dress and try to impress and bring the Lord your best on a Sunday. Because below we're just as filthy rags. What you wear is not indicative of where your salvation is. What you wear is not indicative of your godly walk. It does not matter at all. And so why did John wear this? He wore it because a hairy garment was associated with a true prophet. And the people knew that and respected him as such. See, his diet of locusts and honey was in step with his Nazarite status. See, John was not concerned with the fashion of the day. He wasn't worried about fitting in with the crowd. He didn't care about what the people thought about him. John was a prophet, and he wanted to be taken seriously as one who God had designated for that task. So, beloved, we are called to be prophets of old. Not that you should dress and eat like John, but in setting a line of demarcation. See, through the proclamation of the word, humble and modest living, devoid of greed, arrogance, and pride. That's what we must do. We aren't called to be puppets of the culture. No, we we, we don't dance to the beat of society's drum. No, we're called to live contrary to the culture that devalues God. so So that we can exalt him. We're not called to be like them, imitators of the world. There's nothing wrong with being distinct. There's nothing wrong with being cast on the outskirts. There's nothing wrong with that. Because we know who we honor, we know who we proclaim, and we know who holds our future, right? And then in 7 through 8, we see his purpose and we see John's humility. And he preached saying, after me comes he... Who was mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So after John preaches his message, he now turns to a different subject. It's as if John was like, well, now I've I've preached a lot of messages. And I've had many to to come to repentance through through my ministry. But there's this one brother who's coming, and and he's a bad boy. I'm not even worthy to untie this man's sandals. Now, what I used on you was water when I baptized you. But this man here, he's going to baptize you with something even greater. See, people, this is the sum of John's ministry. This is the point of the forerunner. He points to Christ. And not himself. He could have been jealous and said, "Jesus, eh, he's all right. Being baptized in the Spirit is not the, much of an upgrade from water." But, but rather, John says in John three thirty that he must decrease, as our brother read, and he must increase. John must decrease. Christ must increase. Again. John is not worried about being identified as the man or the best preacher in town. He is not worried about having the best church and nobody else is doing it but me. There's no gospel presence in this area, so we must do it. He's not saying that. His concern is to proclaim what thus saith the Lord, maintain the dignity of the office, and hand the baton over and get out the way. That's it. John was so humble that he considered himself unfit to untie Jesus sandals. The lowest job that any servant or slave at that time could have had was untying the shoes of the master. John said that he's so wretched that he didn't even deserve to do that. John convicts me. Why? Because he challenges me to ask questions about myself. Am I worthy of Christ? Am I worthy of all that he has given me? And even if I say that I am not, do my actions or my personality come off as entitled? How I treat others, what I say, what I do? Is it contrary to that? Or am I constantly trying to walk in a posture of humility, contentment, grace, and thanksgiving? Do I have an attitude of gratitude? And so why is this posture of humility so important as it relates to John and to us this morning? Because John said in verse (laughs) 8 that all he can do is stick you in water. But the one who was coming after him, he can transform your life. Brothers and sisters, this speaks of the soul-transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Given only through the relationship with the King, Jesus Christ. Jesus will give you the Holy Spirit. He will, The Holy Spirit comes salvation. With salvation comes sanctification. With sanctification comes good works. But you can only partake of this King's glorious gift if you believe that out of the abundance of God's love that he sent his son Jesus to this earth to fulfill the law by living a completely sinless life. And that he is willingly gave himself as a bloody sacrifice on the cross paying the ransom of all of our sins since the fall of Adam, and also believing that he was buried in the borrowed man's tomb. And on the third appointed morning, Christ rose from that grave, shattering the chains of death and establishing a new covenant of grace that we all live under. And that he also ascended into the heavens. And he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. But he has sent us the Holy Spirit that John the Baptist spoke of. And that spirit, the Helper, dwells every believer today. So we have no excuse to follow this model of this forerunner. And when I, I'm going to leave you with this. To all our parents, teachers, siblings, visitors, coaches, spouses, friends, whoever you are, when you leave here today, do an examination of yourself. And ask yourself, what kind of forerunner are you? What and who am I representing? Am I leading people, family, friends, in such a way that they see a clear path to Christ, to godliness, or is it the opposite? Pointing to a beautiful family is good. Pointing to accumulate degrees is is good, it's fine. To have a nice job, good. Pointing to building wealth, fine. Pointing to good health, cool. But when you point to Christ, the giver of this eternal life. You've chosen what is best. So it's not about human accolades. It's not about trying to establish yourself to be on a pedestal or to be on a platform so the world can see. No. Because we have to ask ourselves, why do we do all of this? Why should we sacrifice that? Why should we point to Christ? I believe that answer is in verse 5 in hopes that unbelievers would come away from their idols asking what must they do to be saved that's the purpose that our lives and our words would have people asking what must they do to be saved what must they do to follow christ that must be imperative If it is not, we must re-examine what we do and why we do it. That they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be forerunners of that and not of this. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, God. I pray that it fail on hearts that we prayed for earlier, God, that is uh, softened, God, ripe, Lord, to produce a right harvest for your kingdom's sake. And may we not leave here, Lord, questioning our salvation, but leaving here solidified in that, or questioning our actions, God, and what our purpose is as followers of you. But we leave here knowing that we are forerunners, specifically, God, for you, and only you, and that we would be reinvigorated, challenged, God, and leave here more bold as John, and leave here more modestly as John, knowing that our character is also a piece of the puzzle, word and life, got to follow you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.